And that was wonderful. Amen. Harry, not bad. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 18. We will also be in 2 Samuel 6 today. 1 Samuel 18. Make sure and encourage our young people. Uh, please say something to Cheyenne and uh, encourage her. Uh, every time they do something wrong, it's easy to get on to a young person. But when they do something right, let's also encourage them. Amen? Amen. Amen. Today, as we continue and close out our chapter, as our verse-by-verse, word-by-word look through the book of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, we're going to finish out chapter 18 today and entitled The Victims as we look at friends, enemies, and our adversaries today. One of my favorite stories that, that always chokes me up, to be honest with you, and hopefully I can get through this one. It's a story of a little girl, and she was rushed to the hospital, and they bring her in, and they realize that she's got an issue and a problem medically, and she's going to need an immediate blood transfusion to save her life. And because they're short on blood, they realize that the only person who could probably help her because of blood type and genetics, that her older brother, who was about eight, could be the one to give her some of his blood and save her life. And so the doctor approaches the little boy with the parents and says, young man, we need your blood for your sister. Without it, she's not going to make it. And the little eight-year-old kind of takes a step back as thinking, no, no, I'm not going to do this. But some sort of like a little soldier, he sort of mans up and he comes and he says, okay, I'll do it. They go and they put him on the, the table and they put his sister on the table and they began to put the needle into his arm. And after he puts a needle into his arm, the, the little boy looks up at the doctor and says, will it hurt? And the doctor says, what do you mean, will it hurt? We've already put the needle in your arm. He said, no. Will it hurt when I die? And see, the little boy had realized, had not realized in his mind that they were only going to take a portion of his blood. And he stepped up to the plate. And in his mind was going to sacrifice himself for his little sister. Can I tell you this today? That that is why Jesus has left us here on this planet. Not that we could have a good time. Not that our desires could be fulfilled. But Jesus has left us on this planet because there are hurt, abused, and forgotten people in the world. And it is our responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who have been bought by the blood, as those who have been redeemed, it is our responsibility to love, to help them, and to be Jesus to them. And when the answer comes and the question comes, well, who will help this person? Like that little boy, it is our purpose to step up and to help those people. If you're taking notes today, our spiritual purpose is this. The purpose of the church is to help the victims of the world. The purpose of the church is to help the victims of the world. Listen, if you know your Bible, you know that James 1.27 says that pure religion, undefiled before God the Father, is this. To visit the fatherless, the widows in their affliction, and to keep them unspotted from the world. Our goal, our purpose, and one of our goals and purposes as a church, as believers, is to help those that have been run over by the world. Those that are victims of the world system. And to help them to stay out of the mess and the disease and the ugliness that is the world. Amen? 
Listen, if you're taking notes, the pagan culture that we are living in, and by the way, we are in a pagan culture. There's a difference between an atheist culture and a pagan culture. An atheist culture is a culture or a person that says there is no God. And a pagan culture is subtly but slightly different. Some, some pagans, some atheists can be pagans, but pagans are not atheists. But a pagan culture is a culture that says, I am God. And in this pagan culture, it brings nothing but pain and disease. Nothing but pain and disease. Now, it is easy to live the pagan culture if you have a lot of money. Uh, the Kardashians. Great example of the pagan culture. But eventually, well, eventually if you live the pagan culture, you're going to end up in front of a judge. And you're going to need a good lawyer. Eventually, if you live the pagan culture, you're going to need to pay a nanny or someone else to counsel or to take care of your children because you're going to be involved in the pagan culture and it's going to take you away from your children. You see, the people that it affects the most... It's interesting, the people that affects the pagan culture the most are women. The sexual revolution has not helped women. Oh, men have benefited and loved the entire experience. But the sexual revolution has hurt ladies the most. In fact, the, the, the group of people that has the highest rate of AIDS is females. And you know, it's also it hurts as children. Children being raised without a dad and children being raised in split homes. Children who are abused and children who go through all the all the spottedness of this world. When you see a young man and you see him do something horrible in the news, ask yourself and look for the word father. Because whether it be Detroit or Florida, whether it be local or national news, nine times, maybe 99 out of 100 times, when you see a young man who's done something horrible to a woman, who's done something horrible to the community, who's robbed, who's murdered or anything, 99 out of 100 times you will not see the word father in that news story because there is no father in his life. In the next month or so, we'll have Mother's Day and you'll find out that in prisons, there's a lot of desire for send cards and ministries that do this. They bring, make cards available so prisoners can write a Mother's Day card to their, to their mother. But when Father's Day comes, thousands and thousands of prisoners, and usually there's just a handful of requests to send a letter to a father. In fact, I heard this one defense attorney, a public defender, said one of his defenses for his clients to try to get a lesser, lesser sentence, he tries to find their father, and usually their father is also in prison. And usually he points out to the judge and the jury doing the sentencing, this is the first time he's ever been in the same room as his father, right here in our courtroom. The pagan culture that we are embracing as a society brings nothing but pain and disease. And that is a great advertisement and segue to what we're doing in March. In March, we're going to separate a little bit, take some time out from our study of 1 Samuel, and we're going to do a little series building up towards Easter entitled March 4th. The next Sunday we have is March 4th. You get it? March 4th, March. It's the only date with a command. That's my wife's joke. She gets mad if I don't credit her. But we're going to be talking about different things, and there's flyer on the table if you'd like to invite somebody. And the first thing is about the hard truths. We're going to look at some hard truths that people need to hear. Next, we're going to talk about disarming forgiveness. 
There's nothing that can't be, no relationship that can't be changed without disarming forgiveness. And then we're going to look at the only answer. And by the way, spoiler alert, the only answer is Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to talk about victorious repentance on Palm Sunday, about how victorious repentance can be. And so invite somebody, be here as we start March 4th. That's an advertisement. Back to 1 Samuel 18. There is one person who has been who will experiencing the pain of a pagan culture. And quite frankly, I think she gets a bad rap if you've been in church long enough and studied the Bible. And her name is Michael. She is a victim of the pagan lifestyle. She is a victim of the pagan mindset that has got into her father, King Saul. And today, I want to offer a new perspective on Michael. Michael has actually kind of looked mostly in most studies. She has kind of a negative connotation, a negative look in Michael. And so today, I guess I'm entitling my message in defense of Michael. Some facts about Michael, just so that you understand this. She was one of Saul's daughters, and she had a bad dad. She had a, her father, she was the second choice of her father to marry David. She was never mentioned as the prize. The prize to marry her was to be the king's son-in-law. She deeply loved David, but it's never recorded once that David loved her. She wasn't worth a dowry, meaning money to be given to Mary. Instead of giving a dowry, she was given 200 dead Philistines. She was supposed to ensure that her father's reign would last forever, and it didn't. And she wants to love her own children. But as we will see today, she will die childless. If you read the Bible and don't come away with a sympathetic, empathetic, broken heart for Michael, you need to check your heart today. So today, in defense of Michael, number one, if you're taking notes, in 1 Samuel 18, Michael sought love but found lost. Michael sought, sought love but found lost. Look at verse 20, 28, excuse me, 28. And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. And here's his way he can manipulate and get into David. And that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul noticed that Michael loved David. He's going to use this. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David. And Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass that after they went forth that David behaved himself even more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set. As we read through that verse, you might notice David's behavior. You might notice Saul's rage and his ugliness. But as I read those three chapters, I notice that Michael loved David. But what I notice is missing, what is not in those verses, that David loved Michael. I'd like to use this opportunity, sir, to talk to you for a second and talk to you about your marriage and talk to you about your wife. You see, the Bible has a verse that relates to this in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.25. Gentlemen, listen to this. Wives, elbow him gently. Husbands, dominate. Boss around. Push her. Belittle her. Well, no, that's not what it says, does it, ladies? Husbands, what's the word it says, ladies? Hey, oh, I'm trying to help you, sisters. If you don't help me, I won't help you. Lady, what is the word, ladies, what does it say? Husbands, love. husbands, love your wives. How? How am I supposed to love her? I'm supposed to love her when it's convenient. I'm supposed to love her when it's easy. I'm supposed to love her when she loves me back. No, the standard, even as Christ also 
loved the church and gave himself for it. You know what's also missing in that verse that I notice? It never says wives love your husbands in that verse, does it? There's a natural tendency though, ladies, isn't there? There's a natural tendency for a lady to be more open. There's a tendency, maybe, I, I know it's partly because how God has programmed you because of being mom, the nurturer, the caregiver, that's so much. When my kids got hurt and stuff, they didn't go, I want dad. No, they went, I want mom. Now when they're older teenagers in their 20s and they have a bill they can't pay, they say, I want dad. It's changed. I always say, go find mom, but no. Um, gentlemen, listen to me, sir, please. She is different than you. She is different than a man. Thank you. One of you. The rest of you, I'm worried. But she is different. I mean, I, I know. I, I've got one, too. Hey, in your hurry and your goals and your vision for retirement, your goal to climb a corporate ladder and your desire to get this and have this level of success, would you do me a favor on whatever vision you have? Would you put it number one outside of serving God? Would you put number one, love your wife? You say, well, I should put my kids. No, no, listen. The number one things your kids need from you is they need a dad who loves their mom. Let me give you something that everyone needs. You're taking notes. Everyone needs contact. Uh, sir, if you have a daughter, I don't care how you were raised. Don't give me any excuses. Every day, you need to tell your daughter you love her, put your arm around her, you need to tell her she's beautiful, you need to encourage her every single day. Because everybody needs contact, and if she doesn't get it from you, she'll get it from some guy, nine times out of ten, he's a loser. Sir, you need to do this with your daughter, but you know what? Everybody needs contact. Uh, I always have to clarify this, sir. What I'm talking about in relations to your wife, I'm talking about non physical intimacy contact, holding hands and everything else. Some of you were like, yeah, contact, that sounds great. No, not that kind of contact. Everyone needs love words, words like sweetie, honey, baby. And I know, come on, I know it's easy after a while because we've been married over, good Lord, over 25 years now. And I know it's easy to be sarcastic and fun because it becomes your best friend and you say, hey, knucklehead, hey, you idiot, hey, go do that. I know it's easy to slip those words in. Can I encourage you not to slip demeaning words, even as irony, because eventually maybe they become the truth? Everyone needs words of encouragement, words of love. You do a great job. My wife does this. I'll say this. this. One thing about my wife, though, and I've, I just decided not to play this game because she'll cook dinner and stuff. As you can tell, I like to eat. And she'll cook dinner and things, and I'll be like, man, that was great. I always try to tell her, I think it was a great meal. And she'll, she's been coming back with, well, why are you so surprised? And so I'm like, you know what, I don't even play this anymore. I just go, oh, that's because you're a horrible cook, and usually what you serve me is garbage. And, she's like, and I said, if you're going to play this game, I'm going to come right back at you. Because you are a good cook. I like your food. This didn't happen overnight, Okay. Everybody needs love words, though, right? Everybody needs love actions. Things that you, you want a great book if you're here and you're married, you're struggling, or you're about to get married, you think you might want to get married, whatever. You can always tell married people because they have that twitch. But if you're married, um, 
Gary Chapman has a really good book called The Five Love Languages. It kind of touches on a lot of that. The Five Love Language, you can get it probably for a dollar on Amazon. It's a really good uh, uh, book that describes this because many times you think, right, you're doing stuff for your wife and you're like, oh, she knows I love her because I get up and go to work, I do this and this. And what your wife really needs is she's dying for just a simple little word. And other people are different because some people, you're giving them words and you're encouraging them. And I know this about my wife. My wife is not somebody who needs words of encouragement. That's not her. My wife likes gifts. She is big on gifts. Gifts say, you love me and stuff. Of course, everybody's that way, aren't they? But anyways. Uh, ladies, let me just say this to you, too, in defense of the men. Okay, we're, I'm going to pull back out here. But I just need, in defense of men, he is a man. Your options are limited. They come in different sizes, but they're not very different under the hood. Um, and every now and then, I, ladies will say this all the time. You know, um, ladies, just, we don't get your signals. We don't know what you want. We don't know what you're thinking. I've been married for over 25 years. I look at my wife, and I have no idea what's going on. And at a certain point, you need to stop saying, well, he should know who I am. He should know. Well, he hasn't figured it out in 20 years. Why do you think he's going to figure it out now? At a certain point, you should realize he doesn't get that. He doesn't get your emotions and your feelings. If you wanted that, you should have got a girl because what you're describing is a female, not a male. Amen? Now, I'm not encouraging you to do that. Don't. So maybe you need to help him out because, after all, he's just a man. But before you can properly have any correct love relationship... You need to correct your first relationship, and that's with God through Jesus Christ. John 15, 13, greater love is this than no man, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Before you can get these relationships right, you need to get this relationship right. And you are a sinner separated from God, and that's what broke that relationship. But God sent Jesus to die on a cruel Roman cross to be the penalty and the payment for your sin. And today, why don't you get your relationship with God right? Say, Pastor Steve, I did accept Christ. I am a believer. Then let me ask you this. How are you doing with these, with God in your relationship? Amen? Number two in defense of Michael. Michael desired intimacy, but received indifference. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 32 is what I'm going to quote here, like we did at the beginning of our service. Um, I need to point out this, though, that intimacy is more than physical contact. Uh, intimacy is one person knowing another person in body, soul, and spirit. Do you understand me? Intimacy is one person knowing another person in body, soul, and spirit. That's what intimacy is. And next week we're going to see at, see how when you become physically intimate with somebody, there's also a spiritual intimacy that goes along with it, and there's a connection. My wife knows me. Um, it was a few years ago, and uh, we went to the funeral of somebody of a church of the church I grew up in, and uh, we ran into an older man, and I hugged the older man. He was just somebody I loved, and we started talking, and we were talking about old days and stuff. And uh, his granddaughter was with him, and uh, you know Sandra and I are in our late thirties, and she's the same age as I am, his granddaughter. And um, I just looked at her and went, "Oh, hi." And didn't really talk to her, and I just focused on her. And so we walked away, and Sandra goes, okay, what's the story? And I was like, what do you mean? No, there's, what do you mean? What story? And she said, Stephen Paul Sheridan 
I know you. What happened? You went out with her. How did it end? And I went, yeah, you're right. It didn't go well. And she knew me. She knew my reaction. Because she knew me more than just body and soul. She knew me spiritually. You see, that is true intimacy in knowing someone. Can I give you a few steps to intimacy based on Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4, steps to intimacy. Number one, it starts with kindness. Ephesians 4.32, and be ye kind one to another. And be kind one to another. You want a great definition of kindness? There you go. Kindness is doing what is best for the other person. Maybe not what they like. Sometimes the kindest thing you can do is difficult for that person, right? Cutting up someone's credit cards might be the best thing for them. They might not like it, but it might be the best thing for them. And I just touched a raw nerve, didn't I? But anyways, kindness is doing what is best for that other person. Listen, you need to start considering others. You need to revitalize your marriage. You need to revitalize your home, every relationship you have. If you started putting others, your spouse, your family, and your kids, if you started putting what they needed ahead of you, you would change your marriage. You would change the relationship with your daughter. You would change the relationship with your stepson. You would change the relationship with your ex-mother-in-law. Next, kindness leads to tenderness. Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted. Um, tenderness doesn't mean sappy, crying, emotional feeling. No, it means that I respond to what they need. Um, tenderness is empathy as opposed to sympathy. Ten- empathy is that I can relate to what you're going through and I try to understand what your emotions are. Sympathy just means I feel sorry for what you're happening, what's going on in your life. And number three, it finishes with forgiveness. Ephesians 4, 32, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. When I can finally truly forgive, I can finally truly forget. It is a mature relationship that forgives one another. It is an immature relationship that holds grudge. It is an immature relationship that still reminds him of everything he did 1975. You see... These are great for human intimacy. And if you want to get intimate more with your husband, with your wife, with your family, you can apply these basic principles because they come directly from the Word of God out of Ephesians 4.32. But I want to also state that these are great for your relationship with you and God. Kindness. How about you start doing what God wants you to do and not what you want to do? I want to, all right, I'm going to t- step on a toe or two. This is the 930 classic service, so there's a lot more grandma and grandpas in here than some, and the other service, okay? Um, I had someone tell me, and they said, they said it as a compliment, and they, they basically said, they, well, they came to me, and they were telling me their life plan, and their life plan was about their grandparents, and they were going to move in their cottage and this place they had, and I said, can I just be honest with you? Quite frankly, I think that's a horrible plan. And they looked at me. I said, do you know anybody where you're moving? No. Where are your grandkids? All right here and their family. I say, why are you moving away from your family? Why are you moving away from your grandkids? You have an opportunity without having a job to invest in your grandkids. Why don't you start picking your grandkids up from school? Why don't you invest in your grandkids instead of running away from them just because it's warmer there? 
And they looked at me and they said, you know, I'd said this to my pastor that they had, and he said, well, that sounds great. And I said it to a bunch of other people, and they said, you're the first person to tell me I was wrong. I said, well, kindness. Your family needs you. Grandma and Grandpa, instead of moving away from your family, why don't you invest more in your family? See? See, you're the good ones. You didn't go away from Florida, right? You're here. You can amen it. It leads to tenderness. How about you start being sensitive to the Holy Spirit? And lastly, it leads to forgiveness. You're saved. You've asked for forgiveness. But what about the issue that's going on in your life? You see, in just a few moments, we're going to have our invitation. And these are really the three things about our invitation I'd like you to consider. Are you doing what God wants you to do? Are you tender to the moving and the push and the blow and everything about the Holy Spirit as he blows through your life? Are you tender to it? And quite frankly, are you forgiven? You're saved. Okay, I got that. I'm glad you're going to heaven. I'm glad you're born again. But is there an issue in your life, in your relationship with God? How about we start going from a God that is a God on Monday morning or a God when the doctor tells us bad news or a God when I can't pay the mortgage? How about we start going to a deeper, more intimate relationship with God? And these are the three steps. And lastly, number three, turn over to 2 Samuel 6. This is important. I want you to see this. 2 Samuel 6. David craved contact but received isolation. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we meet Michael again. Excuse me, Michael craved contact but received isolation. Uh, Michael's father, Saul, is dead. Her brother, the good one in the family, he is also dead, Jonathan. The Ark of the Covenant is finally coming back. It is an exciting time. Michael has become bitter here, to be honest with you. And quite frankly, if anyone had a human reason to probably become bitter, I think Michael's probably at the top of the list. But in 2 Samuel 6, this is what happens. Verse 16. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window. Notice she's not involved in the happiness. She's not involved. If you are bitter in your relationship with God, if you are involved in a sin relationship with God, as we worked collectively, as I preach, you cannot be involved. It is an amazing thing to watch people and be in the midst of a group of people who are celebrating, amidst a group of people who are worshiping, amidst of people who are being moved by the Holy Spirit, and yet they stand as an island, unmoved, unrecognizable around the people around them. Why? Because they are bitter towards somebody or they have an unforgiven issue in their life. Michael is here in the midst of great celebration and she's just watching it through a window and she's getting bitter. Michael saw his daughter look through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And what does she do? And she despised him in her heart. Didn't we just see a few verses ago in what we were reading? She loved him. I often tell this to young people because they think there's a fine line between love and hate. And you watch somebody, somebody, especially in youth department, because kids aren't as good as hiding their emotions like you are. And you watch somebody when they're 16 and they like that boy or they like that girl and they like them for a while and they finally realize it's not going to happen and they go from really liking them to despising them, to hating them. There is a reason for that. And the reason is this. Love that is given and not returned turns into hate everyone will notice. Um, This is a lot of marriages. Sir, the reason she despises you, the reason there's a borderline hatred underneath everything, there's like this tension level, is because she has been giving you love for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and you've never returned it to her at all. 
and you look at me and say, well, I told her on our wedding day I loved her, and if anything changes, I'll let her know. Well, what's going to change, you might need to learn this word, and that word is called half, because you're going to end up giving half of your stuff away because your wife is bitter and resentful towards you, and it's just below the surface. That's really good stuff. In verse 20. I might have saved some of your marriages, to be honest with you. Some of you, I just saved your guns and your, your, your boat, right? Somebody else would be driving it. But Verse 20. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of, the, of Saul, came out to meet him. Watch how she responds with David. She is angry. She, is disp- she just loved him. How glorious. This is sarcasm here, isn't it? How glorious was the king of Israel today? Who uncovered himself today in the eyes of his maidens, of his servants, as one of the vain followers shamelessly uncovered himself? And David said unto I'm sure she was thinking, my dad wouldn't have done it that way. And David said unto Michael, it is before the Lord which chose me. Look at him. You, you see David's mean streak right here? It is before the Lord which chose me before thy father. David's kind of a jerk here. And before all his household. That, that bothers me. Because, you know, that's a reference to is Jonathan, and Jonathan was nothing but good to David. To appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play before the Lord. And he even gets on her a more. You know, you can see, this is your marriage, isn't it, right? Come on, you've you've had these arguments before where somebody comes at the other person with all this pent-up vile, and it's not that, right? It's not that one little issue. You're just using that issue as an excuse to vent, and you finally vent, and then they come back with something ugly. In fact, they come back with something ugly. Oh, yeah? You don't like my mom? Well, she's going to live with us now. And even inside, you're thinking, no, shut up! But you say it anyway. This is what David does. I will yet become more vile than us and will be based in my own sight and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of. And you could just see, this just crushed Michael. And of them shall I be added to honor. And therefore, watch this, this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children unto the day of her death. Listen, if you don't start dealing with your relationship the way God wants, this will be your end. Because when you don't get this relationship right, you can't get these relationships right. This is your marriage right now, isn't it? This is your family, just a, a quiet layer of hatred that's just below the surface, and it just needs one little thing to set it off, and you explode or she explodes. Sir? This could be your daughter's marriage if you don't start acting like a dad to her. If you don't know Jesus, the end, the isolation that you'll experience is forever. Jesus used places called heaven, and Jesus also used a place called hell to describe it. Your isolation will be separated from God forever. Start creating intimacy in your personal relationships by starting to create intimacy with God. Be sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit. Don't wait for a disaster to get on your knees before God. Amen? The late, great Chuck Knoll, who coached my beloved Pittsburgh Steelers, had a story 
that in 1978, on their way to win their, their third Super Bowl, they were first place in their division. And the Houston Oilers came in and destroyed the Steelers. Their young rookie phenom running back, Earl Campbell, ran for almost 200 yards, unheard of against the Steelers' defense. That week, though, the Oilers left. One of the Oilers players left their playbook. Their playbook to the offense the Steelers could not stop that day in the locker room. And one of the clean, the people, that, the attendants of the locker room found it and brought it to Chuck Knoll, thinking that he would kind of get a reward. Here's the playbook of the team with the offense. We could not stop it. Chuck Knoll that week in his meeting with his players held up the notebook and said, somebody found this in the Oilers locker room of the offense that we could not stop. This is their playbook. He took that playbook and he dropped it in the garbage can and said, gentlemen, it is not important what they do. It is important what we do. I do not care what plays they run. It is how our defense that performs answers the question. Sir, it is not important how she responds to the love that you give her. You, will not, you are not responsible for how she responds. You are responsible simply to love your wife. Ma'am, you are not responsible for how he behaves and how he conducts himself. Quite frankly, many of you might need to come to the cross today and come to the steps because you're carrying a level of bitterness towards your husband. Some ladies carry a level of bitterness, and I, don't, I mean to be lightly here. Some ladies carry, ladies carry a level of bitterness because he died. And you're just so upset about that. You have some issues that you need to take care of. It is not your responsibility how your daughter, how your stepdaughter and your granddaughters respond. It is your responsibility today to do the right thing. How they choose to respond, they will answer to God today. How will you respond? Do the right thing. Amen? You bow your head and close your eyes with me.